episode of Thick and Thin Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nithin. What's good, Nithin? What's up, man? Happy Thanksgiving, first and foremost. Um, just to show my dedication to the pod, I'm coming to you live from my in-laws' uh, laundry room uh, to make sure that I had adequate space, adequate acoustics uh, to get the job done here today. It'll be remain to be seen whether that's true once you complete the, the the production of it, but we're giving it a shot. Hey, we we do what it takes, man. <clears throat> How are you enjoying the East Coast? How's the Thanksgiving family time? East Coast, Beast Coast, man. I missed it. I, I, I don't even remember why I ever left. You know what I mean? <laughs> Great state of Virginia. Can't ask for anything more. It's sixty degrees today. What more do you want? 60 degree. I mean, it's like that every November for us, so it, nothing new here. But, um, but yeah, man, I mean, it's been, what, a week and a half since we last talked? A week and a half. I feel like a lot has continually evolved. Every time we say something, I was talking to a buddy today who's usually on top of listening to our pods, but he's like, honestly, with the day, the way the NBA goes now, it's like if I'm two or three days late, it's all the old news, right? Because... Whatever take you had, whatever team you were worried about, or whatever team you were hyped about, all automatically goes the other direction within a matter of a couple bad games or a couple good ones. And, you know, speaking of uh, things kind of moving around, I remember, do you remember me always saying 20 games is where when things start to stabilize? Yep. Yeah, there's a stat around this. Apparently, teams that win more than 12 games. Out of that first 20, so go 12 and 8, 91% chance to make the playoffs. And then there's a pretty big drop off after that. So I 12 that. out yep. of 20 is the magic number, I think. Um, and so you start to see as the records shake out, Utah starts to fall out, some of these other teams start to climb back up. Uh, you know, things are starting to normalize a little bit right now. Well, I think that's what's so interesting about that stat because you have a Utah who is supposed to tank. You have an Indiana who is expected to tank. You had Sacramento who is expected to be well below 500. Same with Washington. Not all of those teams reached the 12 out of 20 mark, but certainly you're having a lot more kind of like unexpected results early. And so a team like Utah has already fallen from at one point they're the number one seed in the West, I think, even as as recently as our last recording, and now they're in the play-in mix, right? And so a couple of weeks can do that to you, whereas a team like Indiana has no signs of stopping and seems to be, you know, fully on the way to earning a playoff spot or at least being in, you know, that 7-8 play-in range. So I'm curious to see how it goes and how well that stat holds up because I feel like, I don't know, this more than most, we had talked about how wide open the title contention was. What it also turned out to be was the middle class is even more wide open, right? Where mm-hmm. Cleveland or Atlanta or or Memphis or whoever can all look like world beaters on one night and then get taken to the woodshed on the next. And I think, especially with players sitting out so frequently, that's going to become more common, I think, in, in the NBA uh, moving forward. Absolutely. Um, but before we get into basketball, we have to talk a little World Cup. Yes. Have you been watching? Have you been following? Big game today. USA beat Iran. Squeaks Dude, into I've the been uh, wa- tournament. I'm all over it, man. We didn't get in in 2018, so I feel like my attention paid to the World Cup was was sort of mixed, right? Where I could watch it, I would, but I wasn't going out of my way. Somehow, you know, the USA, the excitement has just buoyed me into, like, being all over all of it. We got a new system where we only bet corner kicks. Um, it's it's foolproof right now. Like we're two out of four essentially, so it feels like paying my rent just doing that. And the truth is, there have been crazy results in the World Cup too. We just talked about the NBA, like Saudi Arabia beat um, beat Argentina. You had Japan beat Germany, and all these things going on. And you know, Team USA, we are the definition of winning ugly, but we got it done. And, you know, we're on to, we're on the Netherlands on Saturday. I mean, we have a shot against them. That's all you could say, right? So we just need Pulisic to be healthy. Yeah, and speaking of, um, you know, 2018, I actually forgot we didn't make it in 2018. I kept thinking of the 2014 World Cup and all <laughs> those games as, like, what happened four years ago. Yeah. And it was not until recent that I was like, wait, they didn't qualify? So it's been eight years. 
um, insane that it it's been that long. But the games, man, I just forgot how. T- I mean, I'm not a big soccer guy. I don't watch a lot of EPL. I used to back in the day. It's just the it's just too intense. And the the game against England, the game today, I can't. My heart can't take it. Just watching, every, you know, the rise and fall of every moment. Um, it's it's insane. Dude, it's pure cardiac arrest at all moments, especially freaking nine minutes of stoppage today. And the ball squirts past the goalie with like six (laughs) minutes. I was like, oh, my God, because, you know, we had gotten the second goal, right? Like right before half or right after half, I can't remember. And they took it off the board and they didn't even review it. So I don't know. Or maybe they reviewed it quickly and it was deemed offsides. But I'm like. Okay, we clearly wanted that first one to keep Iran, you know, from just sitting in their shell. Now we're gonna now we're gonna have a little bit more space to attack, and we we look like we ran out of gas in the second half, which is worrisome because that's also how we looked versus Wales in in the first game. But part of it was strategy, but you know, protecting the one zero lead is a very dangerous strategy in soccer. So thankfully, they somehow made it through. But uh, I was thinking, this got me thinking. So you and I are both basketball, then football is kind of our top two sports, right? So if you think about soccer, hockey, baseball, and uh, yeah, those three primarily, how would you rank them in terms of tenseness, tenseness of watching your team play? Because part of it is basketball and football, because so much is going on, it's not really like moment to moment tense. but Hockey and baseball and soccer are all tense in their own ways when you're just like clutching onto like individual moments that have to change the whole game. So how would you rank those just being like, this is a 10 on the scale of like, I'm about to die. I need to be taken to the hospital versus like, all right, this is a two. I can sit back and relax. Soccer is definitely a 10. You start, start right there. It's because every goal, I mean, just by virtue of the fact that every goal has such a monumental weight. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. That has to be 10. I'd say next is basketball. It's, I think, you know, because possession to possession uh, in a close game, intensity is ratcheted up. uh, Every possession becomes extremely important. Then I might go hockey. Um, Once again, because the scoring is so scarce, I think that that's what puts hockey there. Then I say football. Then I say baseball. So I think I actually have hockey one only because scoring is scarce. So it combines that of, of, of soccer with the action, nonstop action of basketball. So you can never look away any given moment. They can fly down the field. Like you can tell in soccer kind of when they're building up or when they have no chance to really make a, make a run or there's no real scoring opportunities in hockey. That could be whenever, right? One slip, one missed pass, one power play, whatever, I think hockey has to be like when I was watching the Caps, I remember in 2018 and part of it was just like DC hadn't won a title in forever. There's an element of that. But when you're sitting on like sudden death overtime, I don't think there's anything like it. Like it's truly excruciating. Um, Second, I would go soccer. Third, I'm actually going to go baseball because the problem with baseball is everything takes so fucking long between plays that you're sitting there for like 25 seconds just building up. It's a full three, you know, full count, bottom of the eighth, two outs, two on, something like that. Like, I know the, the the sport itself you may not care about as much, but like the way it builds up over and over again only for like a foul ball or something else and you like come back down and then you have to like build yourself back up. I think basketball in the fourth quarter can get like that, but earlier it's a little bit more free-flowing, a little bit more back and forth. And especially with three-point shooting, you can kind of always get back into any game. And then I think football's last, just given how much each drive can take and how long you can sort of tell before there's something meaningful happening or, you know, the big plays or certainly at the end of the games. So I get all those arguments. Baseball, I actually enjoy playoff baseball for those reasons. Uh, yeah. I, the only thing with baseball, though, is that the hit rate is so low. So even in those really tense situations, the tense outcome ends up being strikes, which isn't scoring, right? Whereas basketball, you're more likely to score. Um, And and so that's why I'd put it below basketball, but I I get that. And football, yeah, football probably is at the bottom. And that's funny because it's the most popular sport, uh, at least among Americans. 
but in terms of this ranking, put it at last. Yeah, the one thing I will say, I was, I was thinking about this, the World Cup gets so much better, I feel like, when you get out of group stage, because, like, right now, people are fighting for ties or draws or wins, like, they don't, like, everyone has different goals, and so you go, go into the fetal position as soon as you have what you need, and the second that goes away, then you have to change your style, but then the other team is going into that, you know what I mean? So, so the whole thing is, like, it's so frustrating, because it's like, you can't just watch both teams being aggressive, it's like pockets. At least once we get to the tournament side of things, you got to win advance, right? And so there's an element of like everyone is going to try to score goals and try to be aggressive, which I think I'm looking forward to that much more than I am group stays, especially these later games where, you know, you're strictly playing to a particular outcome. Absolutely, dude. Like today's game was infuriating because the first half, Iran just parks the bus. Um, yep. You know, because they just they just need to tie to win. And then second half, obviously, they're going all out. USA is playing super defensive. It's just, it, it feels like prevent defense for the entire game. And both teams just switch yeah. off. No flow, no back and forth. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited for the groups. The Now that we're past the group stage, because we're going to see actual scoring, hopefully, and a better flow to the games. But, um, yeah. but yeah, man, Netherlands on Saturday should be good. Um, we'll Are you going to get up for that? 7 a.m. local time? Yeah, man, of course. It's not going to be hard. Are you going uh, to bars for any of these games? No, I was at the office today for today's game. <laughs> I was watching oh, in our wow. cafeteria. They set it up on the big screen. Um, and so we posted up down there and was watching. Uh, was it well attended or was everyone a little wary of like spending two two plus hours kind of in the middle of the workday? Well, first of all, the office is not that, you know, it's not that many people in it. So. There weren't that many people there. So, um, it's not the same as previous years. I just hate the, the timings of these games. Um, yeah. Well, they are a, doing their best to to allow U.S. to, to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah but, yeah. The, you know, the U.S. players are actually angry about that because they have to play at 10 p.m. local time. So they're sitting <laughs> yeah, there all day just, like, prepping for this, like, <laughs> nighttime game. By the time it's done, they're, like, probably exhausted and want to go to bed. Yeah, yeah, it's not great for them. Um, but Saturday, hopefully, is a it's a better better time slot. So we'll see. Yep. All right, let's switch to the actual NBA. We got to start with the one team that, above all, by far in the, in the season this th- thus far has has really put the clamps on their opponents. The Boston Celtics. They're seventeen and four, first in offense by an enormous amount. I mean, they are breaking the NBA record uh, for offensive efficiency right now. Per basketball reference, they're at 121.5 points per 100 possessions, which is just insane. Defense is actually average to below average, but a lot of that, I think, because Robert Williams is out, because they're paying such a frenetic pace, and it hasn't mattered. Like, they have the first, uh, they're first in the league in net rating, so they're still crushing teams. You know, yesterday they had 121 points through three quarters versus the Hornets B team, uh, which is basically like every other team's like C or D team. But nonetheless, 121 is 121. What in the world is going on? Boston comes off the NBA Finals, has this crazy controversy with Ime Adoka, has, you know, Rob Williams go out with a knee injury, you know, Malcolm Brogdon, they basically gave, the Pacers essentially gave him away, so nobody knew how he would fit. Danilo Gallinari tears his ACL, and none of it's mattered. In fact, they're even better than they were. Um, everyone is clicking. The efficiency numbers are ridiculous. Like I mentioned, I mean, they're close to a 50% from the field, 40% from three team right now, which has never been done. Um, and, and and they are, you know, driver's seat for, for home court advantage throughout the playoffs. And you already have to start talking about that with how good of a start they've gotten off to. So what's been most impressive with you uh, for you about the Celtics thus far? I mean, it's just incredible that last year they were juggernaut by being first in defensive rating. Um, and they're mm-hmm. still top 10 offense. They're like 9 or 10. And this year, they flipped the script, right? Historically great offense. The defense has actually suffered. Um, but part of that is the, the pace they play, and, and you know, it's, it's, it lends itself to the worst defensive unit. I, dude, I'm just impressed because, you know, Tatum had come out recently, and, or they had interviewed him, and he had said, you know, they asked him what's the success behind this offense and you know, tactically what's different than last year. And he outright said that it's it's still a lot. They play with a lot of randomness. It's a lot of trust. It's not like that um, 
You know, they've instituted some brand new schemes. They've revamped the offense altogether. Uh, it's a lot of little things, but I think mostly the chemistry behind between these guys, um, the the fact that their turnover rate has dropped dramatically since last year. I mean, that was the key problem for yeah. their offense last year. We saw it amplified in the playoffs um, on crucial possessions. And I think, you know, the, the, the ball movement's more fluid. They turn it over less. They get good shots. And they're just shooting lights out. And, and some of that will, will come down, will regress. But I think this is a team that has just got such great cohesion. They've continued their, their start from last year. You know, I, I always wondered, they were a Jekyll and Hyde team last year. Um, and while everyone assumed that they'd carry over and still be good based on how they performed in the second half, I thought maybe there's an opportunity to regress. But clearly that hasn't happened. And, and the fact that Ime Udoka has had no impact, his, his departure has had no impact on this team, uh, speaks volumes about just how how cohesive this unit is. And it's been incredible, man. I mean, I, I can't just, watching them, yeah. it's just like, it's insane what they do night to night. Yeah, and I mean, you certainly expect guys like Derek White to not necessarily shoot 45% from three all year, right? And and uh, Grant Williams at 45%, Al Horford at 49%, like Brogdon 47%. In fact, the two Jays are the ones who are actually both below 35 and are bringing this average down. But, you know, I think ultimately there's a few things that you hit on. One is the assist, the ball movement. Uh, they're not ball. They're not holding the ball. Tatum's not taking... 15 seconds to survey the defense and sort of mucking up the flow of the offense. They're passing, they're moving, they're cutting. And ultimately guys like Tatum and Brown are getting their shots, right? They're averaging 56 points combined. So it's not like they are not putting the ball in the hoop. It's great to see that they're taking their time seventh in the league in assists, which is an improvement from last year. And then secondly, the other point you made is the turnover rate. Um, turnover rate has plummeted. They effectively don't uh, have nearly the same issues. I think Brogdon has stabilized uh, their second unit quite a bit. And and honestly, I think they're the you know, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown's not necessarily doing much different from a playmaking standpoint. I think he's just playing within himself a little bit more, being a little bit more downhill, you know, doing a little bit less in terms of trying to create too much out of the pick and roll. And Tatum has been otherworldly. I mean, Tatum, I don't know, we haven't talked about this in a little while. It's still premature, but he's got to be in your top two right now on the MVP ladder. For me, he'd be number one. I don't think he's, he's been MVP, the most no. dominant individual. Yeah, I don't think he's been the, the most dominant individual player. That's probably Steph or Luca. But just given team success, he's got to be right there, and especially defensively what he does that those two guys don't do. And I'm really curious when you think about playing this forward, because this is the team that's expected to play into June. Um, at this point, I would be pretty surprised if it's not the Celtics or the Bucks coming out of the East, right? I don't see necessarily who that third team is going to be at this point. I'm very curious to see if they're able to maintain this type of free-flowing offensive structure or when defense tightens up, when they play a team like the Bucks who don't really have any weaknesses on switches and things like that, if some of the old habits uh, come back because it's a little bit more familiar. I think Missoula has done a phenomenal job, but to me, that's the big next step for them because this is a team that should be looking as right now as their title window. Like it is wide open, and they are absolutely the favorites. There's no juggernaut out west, at least as of now. Doesn't appear to be one. Um, no one in the east should scare them. After the, I mean, they got through the east last year. Milwaukee is the biggest threat, absolutely. And they're you know they're mid like you mentioned the. They're playing a free-flowing offense. They're hitting a lot of threes, getting to the rim. They're 25th in mid-range attempts. And this is a team that, even in the regular season, would rely on Jalen Brown, Tatum, bailouts for mid-range too often during the course of games. They've cut down on that. But, of course, when playoffs come, you're not going to get the open threes. You're not going to get those looks. You're going to have to settle into those mid-range, that mid-range game. But I think what benefits them is the fact that those guys can play that game. And they can play this this elegant offense that's moving, cutting off screen. That it's, I, I think they're in such a better spot than they were last year, um, because the defense, you know, as I mentioned, they're fourteenth this year in defensive rating. That can pick up in the postseason. That they'll ratchet up when possessions get tight. I have no um, hesitation about their ability to play defense. 
So this is a team, man. I mean, they are the title favorites right now. Tatum is the MVP favorite, but um, really it's going to be a wait and see until the playoffs because nothing they do in the regular season is going to change anyone's minds uh, until we see if they can replicate it again in the postseason. The really crazy thing, dude, is you know you you brought up how low they are in the mid range. So they shoot forty one threes a game, um, which is second in the NBA. They make those at a clip of forty percent, which is clear first. So you're basically talking about seventeen made threes compared to giving up just eleven made threes, which is fifth best. So every game they walk in with a plus eighteen from three point line. I mean, you're gonna blow everybody out with that kind of ratio. So how much of that's sustainable? How much of that is a, a, a result of the way they've designed their offenses versus just some three-point luck? I think, you know, remains to be seen. There are sites that track kind of expected percentage, field goal percentage above, you know, actual versus expected. And so there's probably a little bit of that that's going to regress. But overall, I mean, you got to love where they're at because, like you said, not only is the defense going to ratchet up in the postseason, you also have probably your best defender coming back in Robert Williams. Um and and that's going to be important because right now Horford is playing the most minutes he has in five years. And mm-hmm. the worry with this team is always that there's a dependency on Horford. Um, they depend on him quite a bit. And at some point, the age, at some point, the injury might come. And and Robert Williams is great, but can you know are are they strong enough in that front court to to withstand a Horford injury or him slipping? So I think that is the only concern. But if that's your biggest concern. It's it's not that bad. Well, what I would add is the second one, though, is that Robert Williams, as much as he adds to your defense, takes away from that beautiful spacing that exists today, right? So right now they basically don't play any bad shooters. Um, everyone from Sam Hauser upwards, you know, even freaking, you know, Luke Cornett, Blake Griffin can kind of shoot. Um, I'm just thinking about the bigs. Al Horford obviously is able to knock down shots. So when you bring Robert Williams in in a 30-minute-per-game role, what is that going to do to the spacing? What's that going to do offensively? Like, he's still a good offensive player just because he's more around the rim. Uh, But they can't play as much of the five-out basketball that allows Tatum and Brown to just barrel towards the rim at will. Um, So I'm interested to see kind of how that works because you are going to create a little bit more congestion in the middle. And someone like Brooke Lopez, for example, is going to love Robert Williams out there because he's not a threat from deep. He can play his standard drop coverage. And Brooke Lopez, by the way, is potential defensive can- uh, player of the year candidate. I think that's going to play into their favor. So that's all the chess match stuff that we don't have to even worry about quite yet. But it's fascinating because the Celtics have a chance. Like I said, they have the best offense in NBA history right now. They have a chance to put up 60, 62, 63 wins this season. Um, if they want to, they have a chance to have the MVP on their team, which is, you know, uh, you know, it's an ascension for Tatum that makes sense in some ways, but I'm also surprised by it in some ways. Uh, I just didn't think he had this level in him, even after being first team on NBA and everything of the like, to see him go up another level from last year. I mean, he's only 24, 25, so it makes sense. It's still, it's just jarring that he's gotten this much better. He faced a lot of criticism in the finals too, uh, include from, you know, yours truly as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He, we, you know, that, that phrase that kept getting, tossed around um he's not that guy he's not him yeah. right a lot of that was getting talked about on twitter um and all the comment threads because of just how he struggled and you know some of it maybe it was the injury or the shoulder but he really struggled in that final series and the question with tatum is always can he take his game to another level can he do it in the postseason i think he's already answered the first question which i didn't even know he had this next gear in him mm-hmm. and now you know time will come to see if he can do it in the postseason, but I've I've been extremely impressed, man. Like MVP, I think he's the for sure front runner. You've got a lot of other guys like Steph, Luca. The team success isn't there for those guys. I think um, given that they're the first seed right now, he's the the runaway favorite. Though uh, prisoner of the moment that I am, what Luca did today to the Warriors was nothing short of legendary. Beautiful. Um, that one like sort of sidewinding pass that he had to basically like that didn't clinch the game, but it certainly like put them up and gave him like a cushion. That was one of the more ridiculous. Like I went back and looked at the replay. The ball went through like five dudes arms in right into the pocket of Josh Green nails a three. That was sick. Dude, it's, it's insane. He's become a, 
he's become a combo of LeBron and Harden <laughs> in these, yeah. these games where the passing those passes are LeBron like and just the ISO heavy usage, but still can't stop him. Uh, it's it, it it can be brutal to watch, but it's it's just fascinating to watch him somehow come out with points on all these possessions where literally they're sending doubles at near half court at him. Um, he can barely get the ball. They can't across do anything. Well, court. unfortunately for yeah. him as of now. Yeah, they can't do anything, but unfortunately for him as of now, the, uh, the defense is also hard and like not LeBron like, so that's the problem that he's facing. He, he did have that nice swipe though at the end of the game today. And then, uh, popped a transition three, or it wasn't a three. It ended up being a two. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't expect the guy to do everything, man. It's uh, it's tough. That Dallas team is so frustrating to watch. <laughs> um, I know. And and are they even – they're basically just above 500, right? So um, I'm just trying to look for it. Yeah, yeah they no, they are 500. They need 10. this every night yeah. for, him, for them to win. That's not sustainable. Not only is it not sustainable over the course of the season, it's not sustainable within a game. Like, he's broken down a lot in the fourth quarter because he just goes too hard and then he has nothing left and nobody else can do anything. Part of that's by design, so I'm not saying it's, you know, a little bit of that is his fault and the style he likes to play. But you got to get somebody better than Spencer Dinwiddie as your secondary playmaker because then you're dead to rights as soon as he has a bad game, which, you know, anybody's prone to do. I mean, and Kidd doesn't even trust Christian Wood in crunch time. So who are they running? I mean, they're running out Josh Green and Tim Hardaway, who's who's fine, but this team is not going anywhere in the playoffs with this roster. So I don't, I don't know what the moves are in, in the, the trade deadline that they can make, but they need to get aggressive uh, to shore up this roster. Yep, completely agree. Um, all right, so we were having a debate that spilled over into uh, this podcast. We were we realized that the Sacramento Kings are playing the Indiana Pacers tomorrow night. Um, this is a game that I think you're you have key, you have probably about as close of eyes on as anybody um, out there right now because. The Kings, uh, you know, they got off to a, a good start. They are now ten and nine. A um, couple losses uh, here recently, which to be expected, had a tough East Coast trip. Pacers are on a West Coast trip, so they just played the Clippers. They played the Lakers. Uh, now coming to Sacramento, and the big question I think is if you look at these two teams, you're as of now, right? Twenty games in, you're going to have first time All Stars De'Aaron Fox, first time All Star Tyrese Halliburton. Um, and the, the Pacers are overperforming. The Kings are overperforming. The big question on everyone's mind is how amazing would it be if these two dynamic star young guards got a chance to play on the same team? Um, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, it turns out that did happen. Uh, you know, we had covered that at length uh, at the time of that trade. But let's talk about that trade because the, 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 the Fox-led Kings have taken off offensively since they made that move. Fox in particular has played the best ball of his career. When you look at post-trade deadline last year and you look at this season, Halliburton, as you pointed out last week, has played this well in stretches without Fox and is, again, doing so in Indiana. So about you know 60 games, 50 games post-trade, where are you with everything that uh, shook out? And let's, let's break this down because I think you and I are on different sides of this. So I hated the trade when it first happened. I'm on record of, of why. I but today you sent a text saying this has been an abject disaster for the Kings. And I had a problem with that because it has not been a disaster. Uh right now it's a win-win for both teams. And I'll tell you why. It's because move, first of all, people treat Fox and Halliburton pairing as, oh, why didn't they wait it out? They had them both. Why, you know, those guys were not gonna thrive together. They just were not. They're both feed the ball in their hands. Halliburton did amazing in his minutes without Fox. Fox did great in his minutes without Halliburton. The two of them were never going to form this, this backcourt of the future that people kept saying that we had. So we had to get rid of one of them. And guess what? Fox, you know, you can 
harp on us all you want, but we gave him that extension a while ago. He's making uh, you know, over 40 million a year or close to 40 million a year. There was no way, given Fox's value at that point, we were getting anything in return for him. So the question is, I hate it when people keep saying you could have had Halliburton and Sabonis, but you chose Fox and Sabonis. No, we could have had a Halliburton and a way worse asset versus Fox and Sabonis. So before I even get to the way they've played this year, just the value for at the trade time was we're trading an asset that has a lot of value. We're getting a two-time all-star back in Sabonis, who you can build an offense around, who will unlock Fox and increase the value and that Fox brings to your team. And it put us in a position last year to get Keegan Murray because we were able to tank. You know, we we missed... We didn't have healed. We didn't have Halliburton. Our roster was a little thin, able to tank. Not tank, but bad enough to get the fourth pick and get Keegan Murray. So you have to look at all those things in totality when you think about what that trade, how that trade went down. So I'll, I'll pause there. Before we even get to the way they played this season, I think people keep talking about that trade in the wrong framework. Here's my question, right? Why in year two of Tyrese Halliburton's career, when he's been really productive the whole time, when he's wanted to stay in Sacramento, when he's been a great person, a great player on the court, you clearly have one of the top assets in the league on cost controlled for a long time. Would you not even wait a year and a half to prove that it doesn't work? We've seen many ball dominant pairings succeed in the NBA. We saw James Harden and Chris Paul. We saw, you know, Dwayne Wade and LeBron James. We saw, um, you know, even some of the Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant teams. I Granted, those are not Kevin Durant's not a ball handler, but it's worked, and it works well when you have one key element. You got to be able to shoot. And both of those guys, at least Fox this year, but Halliburton, since he walked into the league, can shoot. And so I don't understand. Yeah, their counting stats may not have been as good as they are separately, but I don't understand why you would pull the plug on something like that without even giving it a shot. Or really what you should have done is waited for Fox to play a little bit better, create a little bit more trade value, and then build around Halliburton. The fact that they decided a year and a half into a guy's career who is a great player and clearly going to be a great player, um, that he wasn't a good fit and they had to move on, it just doesn't make sense. And that doesn't even count for the fact of who they brought in as the big ticket to, to sort of trade in the chips for. Because this is the top asset that they have, you can argue Keegan Murray is next in this in this area, but not, I don't think, to the level that Halliburton was last year, and certainly not what he's proving now. So that's a fair that's a fair criticism, right? At the time of the trade, I also thought they pulled the trigger too early. This guy has the potential to be a really special talent, and so why give up on that? But you have to think about it from the perspective of um, now the Kings. Everyone knows the history; they're in pressure to win now. Um, the, but the losing culture, the, the fact that we've missed the playoffs so long, it was taking a toll on the organization, on the players, it's taking a toll on Fox. It's easy to say, just wait a year, wait a year, run it back, change the coach, see what happens. I don't think it's that simple. And I don't think things would have gotten much better. Maybe Halliburton shows he's an even better player, but the team's not going to be winning um, and you're taking a gamble on the fact that, oh, maybe Fox's value is higher, Halliburton's value is higher. I I don't mind them deciding to pivot and pivot quickly in a direction that they were confident in. I didn't believe in that direction at first, but it is showing signs of success and that it's maybe there is some merit to the fact that, look, you get a guy like Sabonis who he's not Jokic. He's a mini Jokic in the sense that he can <laughs> you can run an offense through him he can score. Um, he becomes the linchpin for every action, every screen, every handoff that you run. And it allows you to play a totally different style of basketball and allows you to build a team in a much easier way. And, and that's what the Kings did. It allowed them to go get shooters, surround them with Sabonis and Fox with shooters, and that's a recipe for success. Halliburton and Fox, it's Halliburton is a plug-and-play player. He can play on any team, and that's the value he has. But building around <coughs> Halliburton and Fox was a much, much harder proposition. And you're not just getting a big man to help complement them. You're not just getting a guy like Sabonis 
without giving something up of value. So they decided to go my, in a different direction. But I guess my point is like, okay, the Kings were not that much worse with, so they didn't really tank that much more after the trade than they did before. I know they shut those guys down towards the end of the year, but they were already trending towards kind of like that mid single digits pick. So maybe it went from seven to five or whatever it was. But at the end of the day, Keegan Murray is likely still on that team, or if not, it's a Benedict Matherin or someone in that ballpark, right? Yeah, the, you don't you the, don't go for Benedict Matherin if you get Halliburton and Fox, for example, right? Maybe you should, dude. This kid is stud. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, he's a guard. You're not going to draft your fourth straight guard, is your point. Um, but I think the problem is Sabonis is just not that good. Like. He's not, and when I say he's not that good, I mean, relatively speaking, to cash in a player of Halliburton's worth. And so you could say, okay, well, why isn't he that good? He's 25, two-time All-Star. We both know that those All-Star seasons in the East were not built the same as out West. Like, I don't think at any point people were putting Sabonis in their top 20s. Uh, You know, even on my own list, I've had him fringe top 30, like 25 to 30 range uh, at his peak, and now probably closer in the... 35 to 45 range may you know maybe even lower than that so i think he's not old uh but he's probably maxed out as a player um and even the version that we saw in india was indiana not india um was probably the version he was probably in india was probably going to be epic he's averaging like 80 and 60 (laughs) a game but um so the reality is he he i think peaked and the question is were you going to build a a, a real nucleus around Fox and Savonis. Now, offensively, they certainly have, but the big difference between him and Jokic, aside from, you know, whatever exists on offense, is they've, Denver was able to build a really good defense around Jokic. It has not been proven that Savonis can be the fulcrum of that. And maybe that's just personnel around him, maybe that's scheme, but that's the big unlock if you want this to be anything more than a fun team that wins 41 games. But you have to understand something, right? Like, Sabonis' ceiling is clearly limited. I think even when the Kings got him, he's young. He was only 25 when we got him. But there was no we were under no illusion that he's going to become a three-point shooter. He's going to become a good defensive player. He has a ceiling. And Halliburton has an uncapped ceiling, right? So just immediately, you're capping your potential by getting Sabonis. But the, I think what the Kings thought was the ceiling of a Sabonis-built offense has the potential to be higher than something you build around Halliburton. Now, what I mean by that is it's easier to actually build a successful offense around Sabonis in the short term, because, of course, the Kings are focused on the short term, than it is to build something around Halliburton in the short term. Now, you can argue that that's not the right approach. They should be looking at a two-year, three-year, four-year horizon. But, dude, I don't think you understand 16 years not making the playoffs. Like, you talk about the Wizards being a crap franchise and, always in the bottom, but at least making the playoffs every five, six years, I'm telling you, this franchise is desperate and they're losing fans. There is this other element to it that does matter. Um, there's but, a reason we're so okay, desperate I, for a play-in appearance. So I, I think that, yes, from an, a completely objective team-building standpoint, it's like, oh, you should never optimize for just being a mediocre team in the next two years. But that's really the place they were in. But here's the question, right? Isn't Halliburton better than Savonis right now? We're not talking about a project. Like, he's currently better. So, I I just think it's hard to believe that having those two, maybe you trade a Davion Mitchell or whatever. Maybe you trade Barnes. Like, if let's just say, let's just make up. You traded Barnes and Heald plus a first for Miles Turner who's having a pretty good year for, for Indiana. You don't think that version of the team is accomplishing the same thing that this version of the team is with while getting a chance to keep Halliburton? No, dude. Are you kidding me? Sabonis is way better than Turner. Way. I know better. he's better than Turner, but I'm saying you keep Halliburton in that scenario. No. Okay, look. First of all, Halliburton um, was really good last year, right? And you kept saying, you know, one of the things you mentioned in our thread today was, why did they get more value for him? Guess where, you know, in your little NBA top 40 list that you like doing, you know the one that you did in March of this year, right? Towards the end of the the regular season, 
you don't even have uh, Halliburton in your honorable mentions. Okay? So if he's such a good player, like you keep talking about, and we should have gotten so much value, how much value is a guy outside of your top 40 and not even in the honorable mentions, so outside of the top 50 of the NBA, how much do you think we're supposed to realistically get for that? Like everyone's like completely changed their tune on Halliburton. They act like now he's this all NBA, all 10 time all NBA type player. When last year that was not the discourse. So that's the part I still I just can't wrap my heads around. Like, why weren't you talking about him like that last year? Well, part of the reason is because his counting stats to be on that list, you kind of have to be a productive player. And his counting stats in Sacramento were just weren't there because he didn't play that much or he didn't get that many touches. I mean, if you go back and look, he only averaged 14 and seven, but on great efficiency, like he has his whole career, you know, his rookie year, he averaged 13 and five on again, great efficiency, over 40% from three every year of his career. So it's kind of like one of those things where not being on the list was the same way like LaMelo Ball was probably not on my list, was he? Um, He was. He was 35th. Last year. He was 35th. Last year. Okay, LaMelo Ball is 35th. He's the number two pick, and he made the all-star team last year. That's how stacked the league is. You had Kyle Kuzma on your list. You had uh, I would put Kuzma on that list again. You had Tyler Hero. You need to respect. You need to respect my guy Kuz's name. Look, all I'm saying is that, like, no one talked about Halliburton. They all knew he was good. Everyone thought we were kind of fleeced. But don't act like he was this all-time talent that, like, a Luka that we gave up on in year two. Well, I think, I just think that, like, you know, it's not a Luka. But if you look at him now, there's a very real chance you gave up Chris Paul. Sure. It's possible. But we don't and know that yet. That like, I'm would, not reading into this 13-8 or whatever the record is start as like as proof of anything. It's it's a lot of it's an easy schedule. They beat upon a lot of teams. It's the Eastern Conference, which yes, it's not the same as the Eastern Conference of years past. It's better, but it's still weak. It's still not convincing me that he's Chris Paul yet. In two years, maybe. But right now I still can't say that. And also, yeah, I mean, they have the 19th in strength of schedule, so it's not terrible, but it's not, you know, world beaters out here. But, you know, I just think you look at the talent on that roster. Nobody was writing home about all those guys preseason. And there's one dude who, like right now, if you ask me to put together my starting lineup in the All-Star game, just given positional alignment so I can't have the top four all start since they're all forwards, Halliburton's starting in the backcourt next to Donovan Mitchell, which is... I don't think that that's a testament to the weak East as much as it is a testament to how good he's been. 20 and 11, leading the league in assists, close to 50, 40, 90, like giving you pretty solid defense, giving you that court general, doesn't turn the ball over a ton. I mean, this is what you want in a prototypical point guard. He's almost like the evolutionary version of like a Sean Livingston who can actually shoot from deep. But here's the other thing, right? It's much easier to find good guard play. Now, if he's transcendent, right, Chris Paul, Steve Nash, fine, that's different. But it's much easier to find good guard play than it is to find a big man who you can revolve your offense around. That is just a fact. And so if you think about the scarcity of, of talent at these positions, you know, like if we, we could have drafted Jaden Ivey this year if we wanted to, and we had a very promising young talent. That's a different story that we didn't draft him. But like, we can get guard talent so much easier than we can get a guy like Sabonis. I think that also plays a part in this whole discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so let's move on from this. We'll see kind of how this shakes out. But I just think, like, I was kind of – when you pushed back on said, okay, who are we going to go get? I wasn't able to think about numbers of guys. Like, to me, the next version of that player could have been someone like Cat. Now, I don't think he would have been available for a package surrounding Halliburton. Uh, so I'm not going to include that. Maybe it's a DeAndre Ayton. Maybe it's, um, you know, I don't know who that next tier of like young bigs are, if that's generally and, the position you're targeting. So, yeah. And, ex- and Nathan, the thing is, if we ran it back another year, right, where you say, hey, Halliburton's value only gets better. He's a young player. He's not averaging 20 and 10 with Fox. He's not. He's capping out at 16 and 10. And yeah, he still looks good, but. Once again, he's maybe now cracking your honorable mention list. He doesn't have the stats. So it, it's not like his value was going to get to the point it is right now playing with Fox. And the only solution that was to trade Fox, but we're not getting any kind of return for Fox. And then what are you doing? 
that roster is crap. So, anyways, that that's ultimately I did not like the trade when it happened. I the way the Kings have played this year have has given me hope that we have something we can build around it. Fox is unlocked. Sabonis is unlocked. This is an offense. This is a team that can continue to get better. But I agree. There's a very real possibility that we passed up on Luca, and now we gave up Halliburton, who, if he becomes a transcendent player, that becomes two players you whiff on in the last 10 years, and that's crippling yeah. for a franchise. So I'll end with that. Yeah. I mean, Bagley did have, like, 11 points versus the Knicks today, so the story no, I'm I don't so think glad is we on him He's, He sucks. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's move. Let's talk. Uh, let's bounce around the league a little bit. Um, I know you wanted to talk about rookies. We started with, you know, we we're just talking about the Pacers. You know, Matherin, Paolo, these two are probably the class of the, class of the rookie uh, group so far. Um, I know we've mentioned them before, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on them. We've talked about both at length. Who else has stuck out to you that you really has caught your eye from a standpoint of like? You know, adding more depth, adding more quality to this class. Jabari Smith Jr., but in a negative sense. Um, yeah, the Ryan Anderson. Now, okay, the now you know, yeah, the jump like Ryan Anderson. Um, I think the thing with Jabari Smith Jr. is he's not in a great situation in that Houston team. Um, so it's hard, and it's very <coughs> early. We're only twenty games in. He started the season shooting off just absolutely atrocious. Uh, he's picked up a little bit in recent recent games. He had a nice game against the Warriors recently. Um, but he's still only shooting 34% from three, 35% from the field. No passing whatsoever. Uh, he's he's averaging 12.7 rebounds. Not a playmaker. Not uh, he, He's really just prone to popping out behind the three-point line, catch and shoot. His game seems very limited for a guy that he almost went number one. Like he was the consensus number one pick for the majority of the months leading up to the draft. And I just think that, you know, Houston, the fact that at one point it looked like they could have gotten Paolo, and now they got Jabari. He is looking like he's becoming a glorified Ryan Anderson. And so, and I think given all the other players at the top of this draft, Bancaro, Keegan has struggled, but he's also flashed quite a bit. Jaden Ivey, Benedict Matherin. He's the worst out of the top six guys. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think that the biggest problem that we're going to have with him is how do you get good guard play? Because he can't go create on his own much at this stage of his career. So the question becomes, is that a skill that can develop? And therefore, he's not necessarily doomed from being in Houston with guards who are primarily shot hunters or... Is that something that's really going to hurt his progression and therefore he never reaches his potential because he's sitting here with Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green looking him off possession after possession? So I will say, you know, he isn't shooting the ball as well as advertised. I mean, he's still getting up 11 shots a game. It's not like he's never seeing the ball. Um, just shooting a 35% clip, 33% from three. So, you know, he could take a page out of Ryan Anderson's book and at least be able to hit those shots. Um defensively I think he's been solid um you know that was supposed to be the way he separated himself from Paolo and at least from Chet in terms of the traditional defense set right Chet obviously had the like otherworldly like odd rim protection but people weren't really sure how that was going to translate I think Jabari made a lot more sense so from that standpoint I think it's been solid but you're right man like every time you come down to these like two or three player drafts remember the same thing in 2020 you remember like Everyone was like, Anthony Edwards, or is it LaMelo Ball, or is it uh, James Wiseman? And you all talked to different people. They all had different perspectives. And the reality is, most of these guys are not going to all be great. And you really, really need to get that that answer right, because it's not just to pick whichever one you like the best. Like, one of those dudes, or maybe two of those dudes, are not going to be very good. And it's far, far too early to write anything off about Jabari Smith. But I worry, you know, not having seen Chet, that they got the short straw, uh, not just on picking third, but especially to your point about the way the mock drafts were telling us one thing literally right up until a couple hours before the draft. Yeah, and Chet, at least with Chet, it's always seen as somewhat of a gamble, a very high risk, 
high reward type player. I think Jabari Smith was seen as someone who can come in and play right away. Maybe not to the extent Paolo, but supposedly an NBA ready player. I think the other interesting thing at this rookie class is um, not not to bring up the Kings again, but Jaden Ivey and you know Keegan Murray. That is going to become an ongoing. De- we can't escape these debates, man. Right when we get past the Luca clowning. We have to deal with this Halliburton yeah. trade. And then if even after this, potentially in a year or two, we're going to be talking about Keegan versus Jaden Ivey. Too early, but I think Ivy has really impressed me early on. He's raw. Um, he's still clearly not a finished product, but his playmaking uh, has been a pleasant surprise. Um, I think he's one of the leaders in assists off drives. So when he gets to the rim, he's great at dumping it off, dishing it out. Um and the, the the athleticism and transition, we all always knew that's there. But the shooting, it's streaky. You know, he's shooting 32% from three, but there are games where he he piles them up. And when that shot is on, they're a completely different team. So um, he's another guy, I think, that, that has impressed uh, along with, you know, Matherin and, and Paolo and others. Yeah, the Pistons are interesting because, you know, Cade has missed a bunch of time, uh, which hasn't really helped evaluate what this team's going to be. He's also kind of struggled a little bit now with two straight years of, you know, allegedly a great shooter who can't really make threes. Um, And then their best player has probably been Boyan Bogdanovich, quite honestly, um, who's really, he's 50, 40, 80, 89. And so I just think he's going to be an interesting candidate uh, come trade deadline. If they, if you know, that is a team, like if you're going for it, you'd give up a first for Bogdanovich. Like let's say Miami who desperately needs shooting help, needs offensive firepower, needs some help at the four. Like that's a perfect scenario for him. I could easily see them doing something. I don't know if they would take Detroit would take on, um, you know, Duncan Robinson or anything like that, but I think that's an option. But nonetheless, I think Ivy's impressed despite a lot of, turbulence with Detroit this year. He's just a good athlete that jumps off the page. He can't really shoot yet, which is okay. It's kind of the scouting report coming in. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Not only is this the Kings debate, this is the second Kings Pacers debate too. Uh, because you had Matherin the pick behind you. You had Ivy. Uh, Matt Matherin, no. Matherin, that's all hindsight is twenty twenty. Matherin was seen as a good prospect, but no one had him going top four, top five. Um the tier six. Off. It wasn't like he went like 80th. No, no, but when we're talking tiers. He was a tier below. Um, I felt like it was a three person tier and then Ivy was kind of by himself. And then Keegan, Matherin, Sharp, Dyson. Shut but, up. No, you didn't, dude. That's not what you were. I, look, I was high on Matherin. I, we talked about him being a Pac-12 guy. I was super he was high not on this in the guy. same tier as these other guys. He wasn't. And you're you're talking about and, maybe uh, after you saw him in preseason or summer league. Before the maybe draft. Johnny Davis should have been in that tier. Johnny Davis <laughs> is also impressed. He should be in that tier. Do you want to talk Johnny Davis? You want to rant about Johnny Davis real quick? I don't I honestly don't think I there's like literally nothing I'm able to say. Like I have to pull up his numbers to see how many games like how many minutes He's even played like, dude, this guy has played a total of 45 minutes in the NBA. He's, (laughs) he's averaging 1.1 points per game. I mean, he's shooting 27% from the field. I don't even know what I can say. And and I think, you know. You can't even like like hang your hat on. Oh, he killed it in summer league or preseason at least. And you know, once he gets his minutes, he'll be better. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're on the show. we're in the uh, Wizards fans are in the uh, dude. He was actually really strong in his recent most recent G League performance stage of his career. <laughs> it's, hey, it's at like least the, it's not James Wiseman who's now in the G League in year three. I was just gonna say, and he had some crazy plus minus stat in in the G League. Like in a, in a couple of games, he had this insanely bad plus minus. So he's not even. That's really. Wait, that Wiseman did or Davis? Wiseman. That is really concerning because that was his biggest problem in the NBA, too. Yeah. So he's averaging 15, 9 and a block in 26 minutes a game in the G League. Um, but hold on. 
It's a plus. <laughs> he's got a plus minus of thirty minus thirty five. Um, they've been outscored when he's on the court in all five games he played. Oh my um, god! It might just be over for him, dude. Yeah, I mean, I know he's raw. He's got barely any basketball under his belt. But the signs, man, if you can't thrive in the G League, if you can't even be decent in minutes in Golden State with all that talent around you, yeah, I think it. You know who it reminds me of a little bit? Um, granted, they're different body types, but it reminds me of Jalil Okafor, mm-hmm. who even if you go back to his rookie year, his counting stats are decent. Even when he played, like his per 36 physical numbers are decent. But it's just a net negative every time it's on the court. It's actually like, you know, it's like the worst version of like Hassan Whiteside. Yeah. And but Oka- just never yeah. knows. Where he's- and I don't know how, especially in the Warriors system, that's certainly not going to work. You got to send him to like, honestly, like a Detroit or uh, a Charlotte or some of these San Antonio, some of these teams without a young big that could use somebody in there that can just get a bunch of minutes and make a bunch of mistakes. That's the only hope you have of salvaging this guy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to me, he's a lot like Darko Milicic, where they draft him, the team wins a title, and without they don't need him. <laughs> um but he's just a bust, right? It's the exact same path as Darko at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. Did he get a ring, you think? Wiseman? Yeah, did they give was he like even on the playoff roster last year? I don't even know if he played in the playoffs. No, but he's on the team, right? So wouldn't he get a ring anyway? Oh yeah. Plus he I know he didn't play. He was hurt. That's right. He he was supposed to come back and then he didn't. Yeah, but he, he right, might what be else? Are you surprised by Denver? Uh, they look a little sluggish, and they still kind of do, yet they're second in the West and kind of, I don't know, Murray and Porter are getting better. Um, Jokic's numbers are down, but what do you, I mean, are they real? Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised at all. This is what we, this is what we expected. They were a hot pick to be the number one seed in the West. Everyone had, a lot of people, including you and me, had Denver over. I think the surprising thing was they came out the gate super slow. Um, right. Jokic also, the scoring was extremely down. I mean, wasn't there – was what was that bet we put on, like, three guys getting 20-something points a game and Jokic had, like, five? Oh, yeah, exactly. That happens – that's happened to me multiple times. Yeah, uh, but outside of that, man, I mean, it's, it's – um, you know, they're getting good production out of guys like, you know, KCP has had a resurgent year and is shooting the lights lights out. And, you know, you mentioned Porter. We kind of expected him to play like this. And, and Murray's slowly getting back into shape. So this is the team that I think we always thought they're going to be. I still don't see anything drastically different that makes me think this is a title team yet, right? It's, all, it's to be seen. Um, but if they stay healthy, they're absolutely – a bona fide contender and um, have a good shot at getting to the finals. But I, I, I don't know. That to defense, me, I don't, I don't, I'm not that impressed. Yeah. I'm worried about that defense. It seems really leaky against great teams. Like the Celtics ran them out of the gym a, a few weeks ago. And I remember thinking like, this was going to be a big test for Denver and they just couldn't get any stops because you, your three best players are all average or minus defenders. And in some cases, like Murray coming off ACL or Porter, who's just generally uninterested in all all facets of the game that aren't jacking shots, they're really minus. And so how much can KCP cover or Bruce Brown cover or Aaron Gordon when the focal point of your defense, which is your rim protector in Jokic, and the top of your defense, which is Murray, and your alleged one of your wing defenders, those are pretty important in that setup, and they just... They're lacking a bit, and I just I don't know how far they can go. Can they get stops consistently against Golden State? Can they get stops consistently against Kawhi and Paul George? Uh, well, that's a theoretical team and doesn't even count or warrant mention. But nonetheless, I just maybe the West is just as I don't know. You said the East sucked. The West is like trash. The West isn't trash. It's just the that West a lot of teams are 
are mediocre. There's not a clear upper class, middle class, lower class. It's all middle class yeah, teams like, right now. Um, no, Phoenix, to their credit, have played really well in rebound. Rebound. Yeah, nobody's Phoenix, scared of Phoenix. Phoenix is probably the biggest threat, I think, right now to them. I mean, the defense is a good concern. I think that is not going to get remedied. But one of the other nice stories for them is Bones Highland is uh, he he can give you 25 on a random night, 30 on a random night. And I think that kind of offensive outburst helps alleviate some sometimes um, when other guys don't have it going. So offensively, they just become this juggernaut. Um, or they will be a juggernaut. I, I don't know what their metrics look like right now. That the defense, you can live with some of that even down the down the stretch. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, I think the panic meter in Miami uh, is tempered a bit. They lost, they won three straight, but I'm ready to declare. And this is going to make me sound like an idiot, I'm sure, in four months, but. I think the Jimmy Butler's Heat are done as title contenders. I know they were shot away from the finals just five months ago. But when you look at that roster construction, you look at their lack of depth, and you look at the fact that he's already hurt nursing a knee injury, maybe they're just kind of load managing him for the playoffs. But I don't see any way this team can beat Boston or Milwaukee, and frankly, probably not even a full-strength Philly team. So... But once again, man, we know we knew this. I think we both had. I don't know where you had Miami, but I know I had but Miami. It still feels weird time. to count out. I did too, but it feels weird to count out Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra. It, it does feel weird, you know. And and they've won, you know, three in a row. Lowry is back to life. Lowry started off the season just horrifically. Um, Bam, yeah. you know, we always talk about Bam being underwhelming. You know, without Jimmy there, he's now he put up 32 against Atlanta. He put up 38 against um, your Wizards. So he's showing a little bit of that ceiling. So, you know, maybe there's some life in them. But I agree. Overall, I think they're in a different tier than those teams you just listed. And I, you just can't trust. You can't keep expecting Jimmy to do this like uh, forever. Um, and until right. Bam shows that he can be that guy in the postseason, I'm not betting on this team going anywhere. So I, I totally agree. There's no chance they, they make the conference finals even this year. Yeah. I mean, look, they may have a trade up their sleeve. They just don't have anything to trade. So I'm not sure who's who's going to do business with them. But this version of Bam has to stay consistent where he is a 25 and 10 kind of guy and not an 18 and 8 kind of guy because that's yeah. going to elevate them yeah. to a level that they have they don't currently have a route to. Um. Final question before we go. We got a pseudo mailbag question received via text. How do you grade the Clippers Thunder trade? Paul George for SGA and all his picks. What grades do you give them, you know, four or five years later for each team? A for both. Really? Dude, I don't let hindsight get to me. Like, obviously, it has not worked out for the Clippers. But Paul George, you have to look at the Paul George and Kawhi moves, not in a vacuum, but together. They gave up all those assets to put those two together, and that duo should have won them a championship in 2020. So, And if they did, it doesn't matter what they gave up. It's like the Rams. The Rams gave up all kinds of things to put that roster together. They immediately won the Super Bowl. Now the bill comes, and no one cares. The Clippers could have done that. It didn't happen. You had the bubble. You had Kawhi's injury. Paul George has played well the last several years. He's taken that team pretty far. And if you're a team like the Clippers, you're a guy like Ballmer, you you pull the trigger on something like that and then deal with the, the fallout after. And SGA, obviously now it's like, hey, not only did they give up picks, they gave up this all-NBA type guy in SGA. No one saw that coming. That's all hindsight. No one thought he looked promising, but no one could have predicted he would be this good. Dude, maybe not this good, but he had like, you know, what he did that first year was not anything insane, but he was pretty good. 
And you have to have, like, I just feel like they threw him in because they were like, yeah, yeah, whatever, we'll give you SGA too. And Presti just milked him for it. Ultimately, when you make these all-in trades, you got to win a title, and they didn't. If they do, I would revise, but right now, I think they get a C or C+, and the Thunder get an A++++, how many ever you want to add in, because SGA is all-NBA, like you said. He's under contract. He's 24 years old. You know, maybe C plus is harsh because they did make a conference final. The Clippers did, which is the first ever uh, for them. So, and Paul George was a big part of that. And you can't predict a Kawhi ACL, but I just think that like now you look at it and you're like, this team is suddenly went from a juggernaut to being totally screwed. So, okay, fair, right? SGA, maybe it was a throw in uh, in that deal. He didn't need to be added. Uh, The way I look at it is, yes. Evaluating the results of the trade, oh, the Clippers got an F, uh, and Oklahoma City got an A. Like they clear, Clippers clearly lost. But evaluating the trade as a decision at that time, I'd still give it a B. You know, made they did give up a little too much, but at the same time, they put together a team that was built to contend and built to win a championship right away. And unforeseen factors and Kawhi's just brittle nature is the reason they did it. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is you got to make the bed you sleep in for them. They 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 chose the the Kawhi train, and so that that is what it is. But at any rate, um, that's it for us this week. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin Hoops on all major podcast platforms. Please follow us on social media. Um, you know, we were all freaked out about Twitter. I think it's all fine, so we're still on there. Looks like uh, much ado about nothing, but. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week. 